Well, thank you, Pastor. Thank you, Shelley. Uh, I'm so honored to be here. Uh, I love this church, and I've, I've known your pastor uh, well over 30 years. I was shortly after I started Youth Reach that he came to lead this church and uh, walked in his office, and we first bonded over scuba diving. It was our first bond, and uh, so I'm honored to be here. Well, you you just got to have the honor of meeting my wife. Uh, some of my children are here. We only have seven uh, uh, kids, uh, and uh, all of our kids were born with midwives, and many were born in our home. And uh, if, if my kids that are here, uh, if they would stand, uh, I think, uh, let's see, there's Judah and Silas and Hosea. That's, thank you guys. That's, I've got five sons and two daughters. And by the way, those numbers are even. Um, those girls have never been outnumbered in my home, not once. And I'd, I'd like the staff of Youth Reach, uh, if y'all would stand, please, the staff of, of Youth Reach. Um, I, I want to let you know um, that the that the work and the effort, thank you guys, that, that these, uh, that these men, and that's not all of them, they're, they're not all here right now, but the, the work that they put in and the effort that they, uh, that they pour into these guys' lives is immense. Uh, you know, the, they live on site, they live at youth reach. And, uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a minute, but I want you to, I want you to meet the real heroes guys, uh, of youth reach. If y'all would stand, please. These are the boys in the home right now. Amen. And, you know, guys, I want you all to remain standing because I want to tell you something. I I know what we put you all through. You have willingly submitted yourselves to a very demanding and difficult program. When is your day off? Never. You don't get a day off. We're pressuring you from the first day into the last day you're, you're with us. But we look at it as though you are gifting us with this portion of your lives. And so we're going to be good stewards of it. And we, uh, we don't want to create good boys. We want to we create astounding men. We recognize, we recognize what we put you through and what we ask of you and what you guys deliver. Thank you very much. Y'all can sit down. A little bit about our program. We're only a couple of miles from here. Youth Reach Houston was uh, started when I was, I was 24 years old. I didn't know what I was doing. I was working on the streets of, of Montrose in Houston. Uh, and I was only, I'd only come to the Lord about seven months before and a 17-year-old HIV-positive, heroin-addicted uh, male prostitute, teenage male prostitute, uh, dared me to take him in and help him. And uh, I took him and had no idea what I was doing. And uh, God did so much after that. Uh, eight of the first 12 boys in our home passed away of AIDS. We weren't even sure early on what was killing them. But the, the early times were so... Radical. There was nobody supporting us. It was everything we could do to put peanut butter and jelly and macaroni and cheese on the table. But God began to work things together and over the years provided people and resources. And, 
And we, our facility here is 26 acres. Uh, it's, there's no debt. Everything's paid for. Every building, everything God's done. Youth Reach is, Youth Reach is not a faith-based program. It's a Jesus-based program. I mean, uh, it's, it's all about the Great Commission and going to all the world and making disciples. Uh, you just saw this is, the, this is the material we start with, these young men. And uh, our goal is to, to create amazing, loving husbands and amazing fathers. And that's what we start with right there, and, and they do that. And, uh, you know, it's one of my greatest joys is to be able to travel and visit and see uh, my sons. And when a boy comes into youth reach for the first few weeks, uh, we, you know, we're not sure we're going to invest in them. They've got to earn that right. Uh, people say, well, do they ever run away? It's very rare because they work so hard to get in. They have to fight and to get accepted into the program. But once they get in, that first few weeks is hard. But once they decide they're really going to commit and we're going to commit to them, they're brought into the staff meeting and they many times feel like they may be in trouble. They're not sure why they're in there. But we tell them that when they first called and we talked to them on the phone, they might have been in lockup. They might have been in front of a counselor somewhere, but they were just what we referred to as an applicant. But after they came in and they were given an entry date and they came in, we referred to them as a resident of youth reach. But then when we bring them in after a few weeks, we tell them from now on, we're making an irrevocable commitment to you. And we hold a t-shirt up and it's just an army green t-shirt. And it's got the youth reach logo on the front. And we show it to them. We said, we've printed thousands of these shirts and there's only one way to get one. And that is to be adopted in. And on the front, it says youth reach. But when we turn it around on the back, guys, what does it say? Say it when they can hear it. It says son on the back in big letters. S-O-N. And from then on, we don't refer to them as a resident in a boy's home. They're our sons. We treat them that way. And we tell them. We tell him, now understand that uh, a father treats his son differently than any other kid. He demands more. He asks more. He delivers more to a son. And so we're going to be harder on you than we would just any kid because you're a son. And we've got several thousand sons out there. We've got a, a reunion coming up again this fall where many of them come back. And uh, it's a beautiful thing to see all the sons now married with kids in business and ministry in education, and to know what a knucklehead they were. Let me pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to open your word and to hear from you this morning. I thank you for this beautiful group of people, this faith family that meets in this building. Father, I pray you would give me what you would want to share with them this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. In Proverbs chapter 22, we have a scripture that many times parents lean back on. This is, the, this is kind of our go-to as parents. In Proverbs, it says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. See, the key word in that is train up. Are we training our kids? See, I think that many of us realize that 
there's a job to do in parenting, but I don't know if we really understand what train up means. Some of us feel like that that means that we need to send them to school and we need to do all the things that parents are supposed to do to train up a kid. You know, we do the potty training. We do the, we teach them how to use a fork and a spoon, but are we really training kids up? And I want to tell you, you parents, that if you do not parent your child, they do not go parent less because the world will parent them for you. That if you don't parent your child, they will not live in a vacuum. The world will, and the culture will parent them. They will be raised by something. Kids are are born moldable and something will mold them. And so what we have to understand is that there is a training that is required for you to be able to later claim this. My mom and dad did all they could. I was raised in a Christian home. I had mom and dad that took me to church and it seemed to work really well with my brother and sister. I've got an older brother and a younger sister that to this date, I don't know if they've sinned. They're nice, sweet, boring people. I mean, I love them, but man, they've never done anything wrong. And, and it was my job as that classic middle kid to, you know, catch up for them. And so I was, I was always the one that got spanked four more times than they did. And I, I deserve more than I got. But at some point, I think that my parents, they, they depended upon the church to do what they needed to do. And so let's look and go further into what that training means. In Hebrews 5, and I want you to hear how this has to be read. When you, when you read this, you have to read it with the frustration of the writer. He's frustrated. He's trying to get a point across to some people that aren't really listening very well. In Hebrews 5.11, he says, we have much to say about this. But it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In some, in some translations, he says, you're slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word, God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained them to distinguish good from evil. So let's think about a second what milk is. Milk is pre-digested food. See, milk has already gone through the body of the mother. It is already... all the, everything that could offend or upset the tummy of this baby has already been removed. It's been made palatable, easily digested. And so if I get up here and I do a teaching from the word of God, it's already come through me and to you. If pastor comes up here and he teaches, it's come through him and to you. If you get a teaching over the radio or a podcast or on TV, it's come through someone and to you. Everything you get in that manner is milk. If you want meat, you have to go get it yourself. I can't give you meat. I can challenge you with some really good milk. It, it won't be 2%. It won't be skim. It'll be whole milk, but it's milk. Because it's gone. So 
Someone who is maturing has to step away from someone else, always feeding them and learn to feed themselves. Does that make sense? And so here, what is trying to say, and then there's, it says, but solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves. So we go back and it says, train up a child. So a parent has to train themselves with the meat to be able to have the milk to train a child. You see, we, we think this is just going to happen by osmosis. Many kids are taken to church. We drag a kid to church and we think that's train up a child the way it should go. If we took our kid to church, why are they not living for Jesus? Well, maybe it's because they didn't see Jesus in the home. Maybe they saw Jesus for an hour on Sunday morning, a little bit on Wednesday night, but they didn't see Jesus the rest of the time. And you understand that the culture right now, that we're dropping our kids off at school and the schools are godless. The school is teaching not just godless, but it is anti-God in some ways that we have asked God to leave our public schools. We have asked God to, to leave. We can't pray. We can't do all these things. And here we are now giving our kids to that system. You can do whatever you want. But my family, we decided we, we couldn't go in that direction. Now, let me just drop back and introduce you to myself. When I was a little boy, well, when I was born, my mother named me Curtis. That is a Welsh term which means courteous. <laughs> and by the time I was three, my mom was saying, boy, I misnamed you. And from then on, she never called me Curtis again. She called me Kurt, which means short, rude, and abrupt. So I'm probably not going to spend a whole lot of time making things sweet for you. And I'm going to tell you, you better think twice that if you're going to send your kids to a godless institution for six or seven hours a day, you better be doing something in the home to counteract that. I was recently, this while back, asked to speak at a youth conference. And, uh, man, the Lord was directing me a few days before on what to do. And so I wrote out and put the slides together for two different messages. I had two of them. And so they introduced me. And this was a little bit different because, you know, I'm a little older than most youth, speaker, youth speakers. And they asked me, Andrew, they asked me for my walk-up music. You know how like a baseball guy's batters, and, and I mean, I walked up with a fog machine and a, and a lights on me. I'm like, really? Come on now. But when I got up there, I, uh, I told the, the students, I said, students have two different messages. I said, one of them will leave you feeling good about yourself. It'll encourage you. You'll leave feeling all warm and fuzzy. And the other one is the truth. I said, which one do y'all want to hear? And they go, oh, we want to hear the truth. They go, whoa, 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 whoa. Nope, nope, stop. I said, because I'm not going to spend two seconds trying to make it easy on you. The truth is going to be brutal. The truth is never diluted. The truth is just the truth. Said so one more time and think through it. 
do you want the, the good one or the truth? And they said, oh, the truth. I felt like I needed to sign a waiver. Uh, I sign, you know. And so, okay. I said, let's do the truth. And I asked the audio and visual guys, I said, load that slide in. And the first slide that went up, <laughs> about that big, it says, you were a part of the most weak, entitled, lazy, and worthless generation this country has ever produced. And then I said, now, is there anybody in the room that would like to stand up and argue with me? And no one did. All those students just sat there. And I said, then the next slide, the next slide came up and it says, but you do not have to participate. But the fact is, we are in the bottom of a cycle. Here's the cycle. Good times create weak men. Weak men create hard times. That's where we are. Hard times, this is where we're headed, will create strong men. And then strong men create good times. You see, there was a time in America where we were creating strong men because there was hard times. But then we got to create microwave ovens and pay at the pump. And we created so many conveniences that now all the hard things that we used to deal with are gone. And what we are doing right now is we're creating a generation of kids that know no hardship. And see, it's interesting that we think as parents that somehow we can prepare our kids to face adversity by protecting them from adversity. You can't. You can't prepare anybody from adversity by protecting them from it. I mean, and so I, I want to I share with you, and this is, not, this is not scientific. This is just my experience after all these years of doing it. I'm going to share with you what I believe is a mother and a father's job. What is the greatest job? What's the number one responsibility of a mother? The number one responsibility, the number one job of a mother is to work herself out of a job. Now, see, some moms are like, I, I, I don't like that. Because, see, moms are nurturers. But you're not raising children. Listen to what I'm saying. You're not raising children. You're raising adults. You're raising independent human beings that don't need you. If you're raising kids to depend on you, who are going to need you, who are going to be coming and needing a, I need a loan, mom. Uh-uh. I don't think so. I mean, the greatest thing you can do is let your kid fail. I read a while back, pastor, I read a while back, it says that 96% of what we learn, we learn from failures. We learn 4% from successes. Yet we try to keep our kids from failing. Parents stay up all night helping a kid with homework. Why? They learn from failing. 
let them get an F. I mean, what I learned in the scholastic world, I learned going to summer school when all my friends were out playing. So when you try to keep your kid from failing, you aren't helping because guess what? You have an expiration date. You're not going to be there to bail them out. Let them fail. Fathers, now it's your turn. What's the greatest job of a father? The greatest job of a father is to paint upon the heart of your child a portrait of who God is. It isn't to bring home the bacon or to love mom and all that. That's great stuff. But your number one job is to paint upon the heart, your heart, your child's heart, a portrait, an image of God. And let me tell you, you will fail. But in the effort, God will breathe his life into it. We've noticed over all these years, amen, we've noticed over all these years that the boys that we get into youth reach, they come in with an image of the heavenly father that they got from their earthly dad. If the father was harsh, they think of God as harsh. If the father was indulgent, just gave them stuff, then God's just there to give me stuff. If the father was abusive or harsh, God's abusive and harsh. If he... The father was negligent, then God will just neglect them. And so how, dads, we treat our children is we're painting that on to their hearts and the way they'll see God. Have you ever wondered how in the world, what was, what was going on in God's mind to loan us, dads, his name? That we can be called father? That he will allow us to borrow that name, father? Man, what a responsibility. What a holy and sacred position. He says, I'm going to loan this to you and I expect stewardship of that name. I I have a, a wonderful relationship with a best-selling author in Alabama. Uh, our facility there, I'm there, I was just there a week or so ago and uh, we've got an 81-acre facility there. Here, these guys are uh, 12 to 17 at our Houston facility. And in Alabama, our facility there is, uh, is 81 acres, and this guy's 18 to 22. And I'm there uh, a week or so every month, and there is an author who's written New York Times bestsellers, and he has kind of you know, walked me through writing a book. His name is Andy Andrews. And Andy's amazing. He's a thinker. And one day we were sitting in a restaurant and we were talking about history. We were going over, you know, our love of history. We began to talk about the World War II generation and the the book that was written by Tom Brokaw, The Greatest Generation. And December 7th of 1941 was a Sunday morning. The Japanese had been able to get close enough to launch their, their planes and their attack on Pearl Harbor. And it, you know, it pushed us. We were really trying to stay out of the, the war in Europe, but it pushed us into war. And that day was Sunday, but the next day, December 8th, to this day, it holds the record that Monday of the number of young boys and even young ladies that tried to join the military 
They mobbed recruiting offices across America to join the military to fight the war against the Japanese. Shortly thereafter, we were drawn into the war in Europe. We began to arm England and then we were pulled in and we we went over and then there was D-Day and we, we fought along the coast and Omaha Beach and Utah Beach and then it was the, the Black Forest and I mean the, the Battle of the Bulge and at the same time in the Pacific we went from Guadalcanal to Anzio Beach to, to Guam and I mean we lost tens of thousands of boys. Sometimes in days we would lose five to eight, ten thousand. And then finally after years of bloodshed Germany surrendered on the deck of the USS Massachusetts. The emperor of Japan signed a surrender. And our young people came home. And that generation came home and they started corporations and businesses that changed the face of America. And I said something about the greatest generation. And then Andy looks, looks at me and he goes, yeah, they did a lot. But I don't think they're the greatest generation. I'm like, man, for 20 minutes, we've been talking about everything they accomplished. All the unbelievable things they did. I mean, they, they basically saved freedom on the planet. And he said, yeah, but they, I don't think they were the greatest generation. I said, well, who do you think was the greatest generation? And he said, their parents. Whew. I just sat there a minute and I, I said, well, wow. He had just hit a verbal grand slam. Because the truth is, the greater generation Raised that greatest generation. But what made that generation? What built them was the Great Depression. See, they went through horrific hardship. They went through loss and pain that we have no clue about. That we don't understand. They went hungry. They lost jobs. Executives found themselves in soup lines. And those, that generation raised a generation that saved freedom around the world. So the truth is, the way we're raising kids right now isn't working. A while back, I was watching a, an interview on TV, and they were interviewing a, a famous football player in the NFL who just, I think he re- just recently retired and probably be in the NFL Hall of Fame. And he was talking about how his mother worked two jobs, and she was illiterate, and she was working two jobs to be able to give him and his brother an opportunity to finish high school and to go into college. And, and he said, she worked hard to give us a better chance. And, and he said, and I've worked real hard so that my kids can have a better chance. And I'm thinking, what? Whoa, 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 whoa. Because see, it was one thing for his mother to work hard so he could get the shot he had. But now he's 
a multi-multi-millionaire. And he wants to give his kids a better chance. You see, at some point we tip the scales. At some point we give them so much that they feel entitled to it. That we're no longer giving them hardship that makes them stronger. And so, what are we doing to create this? And so, I uh, there's a book that's going to be available out there. I, you notice it's a thin book because this is what an undiagnosed ADD patient like me, when he writes a book, I get to the point pretty quick. But... Uh, This book is called White Knuckle Parenting. And uh, it's not for the faint of heart. Um, It's available on Amazon, but we've got some copies in the lobby out there. And uh, not only will I I be out there, but I'm going to have my my staff uh, slip out. And they're going to be out there. And if you have, you know, if you just want prayer, if you want issues, to talk to them about issues with your kids, they're going to be out there to talk with you. But in writing this book, you know, I, I started out and, and there's one part of the book talks about the five things we owe our kids. Because I wanted to have you, help people have a little bit of perspective. Because what you owe your kids are just five things. Food, clothing, shelter, access to medical care, and access to education. You do not owe your kids a cell phone. The world tells you you do. The world tells you that you buy them a car. Two of my sons, or three of my sons here, um, own cars. Judah, did did I buy you a car? No. Silas, did I buy you a car? No. Micaiah, did I buy your car? No. I mean, I I don't buy kids a car. Why would you buy a kid a car? It's a rite of passage. Buy your own car. My kids that went to college, they paid their own way. Guess what? They got good grades because they were paying for it. I've never heard of a kid failing out of college. They paid for. They fail out when mommy and daddy are paying for it. And so I believe in personal responsibility. When you, you say a food, clothing, shelter, food, you don't owe them sodas and pizzas. You owe them a healthy diet. Well, they won't eat it. Hungry kids eat anything. Pastor and I have been in countries where kids will eat anything, right? A hungry kid will eat anything. Well, my kid's a picky eater. Well, (laughs) quit buying junk. They'll eat anything. I mean, we have created these bunch of little monsters. My, my, one of my staff members and I, we went to have dinner with a man that he told me, he said, he said, my son, he's abusing my wife. He's cussing us out. He's stealing from us. He goes, I don't know why he treats us like that. We've given him, every, him everything he ever wanted. I, I want to go, uh, my work is done here. But the truth is, we ought to be different. That like Daniel and the Hebrew children, that you ought to be able to look at them and see 
when Christian kids are present, they should look different. They should sound different and be different. We should be raising kids differently. But for some reason, we feel that we have to do the same thing as everybody else. We have to buy them the same things, take them the same places. We have to keep up with the same junk, and we do not. Parents, the last line of my book is, you can do this. And if there's anything I want to tell parents is, I I don't want to lay lay on you that there's more that you got to do. Man, you're doing too much already. Do less. Do less. And you will raise stronger kids. Pastor. Pastor.